Um, I wish I hadn't started that with a huge um. <laughs> Cut it out, folks. Cut it all out. So <laughs> You want to just the... start the podcast over? <laughs> yeah. Like the whole thing. Let's the go back to Jesus thing. and John Wayne. <laughs> I agree. Welcome to Reader's Digress, the podcast where we read nonfiction books so that you don't have to unless you want to. My name is Kate Kiriakou. And I'm Molly Fox. And today we're doing a slightly different episode where instead of telling you about a nonfiction book that we've read, we're going to tell you about ourselves and why we wanted to start this podcast. Which is also nonfiction, so it kind of works. <laughs> it counts. We're doing an audio memoir. <laughs> Perfect. Um, sort of. I don't know. Basically, Molly and I are going to ask each other questions so that you can learn a little bit more about us because we realized as we were talking about the books that you might want to know more about where we're coming from as we evaluate these books and offer our perspective. So this is just like a Q&A episode instead of a mailbag where listeners send in questions. Kate and I are going to ask each other questions that we've written for each other so that you can get to know us better and so that we can talk about ourselves, which is what we like to do the most. I came up with the hardest possible questions I could for Molly, so let's see your sweat. <laughs> They're going to be very philosophical, um, existential <laughs> questions, so prepare to be bored. Also, why is the sky blue? <laughs> <laughs> Explain the tax system to me. <laughs> so I feel like the idea for this podcast started about a year ago. We didn't articulate podcast in any way. But right last year, right before the beginning of Lupandemonium, Kate and I went <laughs> on a weekend trip together to Denver. Uh, we both live in different cities, so we are long distance um, best friends. And we had this weekend planned so that we could see each other for the first time in a while. And we spent pretty much the entirety of the weekend trying to solve this existential problem for each other about what do we want to do with our lives. <laughs> and one of the things that was involved with the conversation was like me <laughs> trying to decide if I wanted to like give up the entire life I've built out on the West Coast and go back to Ohio. And we had a whole like <laughs> pro and cons list. And it was uh, just like, I don't know what was happening to me, but don't worry, I still continue to have this question in my life. <laughs> um, the pro and cons list is still alive and well. Um, also, and then Kate, just like as a newsflash, we didn't figure it out. No, Nothing was no. solved that weekend. Exactly. We, just, we just talked so much that we both had sore throats by the end of the weekend, which <laughs> seems pretty like accurate and descriptive of who we are. Yeah, it, but I feel like when I think about that weekend, I picture us in the Airbnb like that meme from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, where the guy is like <laughs> yes. looking insane. Where Charlie's like putting yes. a bunch of pictures on the, the cord red board. threads all over the wall. Like us just trying to solve essentially an unsolvable question because you solve this by living and experiencing and finding your way. But we were just like, we don't feel fulfilled. We feel adrift. What are we going to do? We're going to decide this weekend. <laughs> Let's go. And we did not. 
but like leave having... it up to us to like basically <laughs> make our girls trip into a fucking conference like <laughs> like a, a grad school workshop where we're like let's solve yeah, this exactly. existential problem <laughs> hit your breakout groups ladies like all right let's cool. start with icebreakers <laughs> <laughs> the icebreakers are just a bottle of tequila that we bought cool so that was sort of the beginning of this that was I think the moment that I admitted to myself like I really want more in my life that because of various circumstances that I was going through I had not had the bandwidth to even conceive of until then to be like I was just surviving up until that point and it it, about a year ago is when I started to feel much more like okay, I've, I've like gotten through the worst of it. Of course, like, LOL, the worst was yet to come. <laughs> not, a, not really. This last year was much better for me than the previous two, which <laughs> that should tell you something about how bad it has been for me. <laughs> it's like so As everyone all across the world was saying 2020, the best year. <laughs> well, it's like everyone thought 2020 was the worst year ever. And I was like, it's much better than 2019, honestly. <laughs> like, Honestly, I'm not mad about it. <laughs> For me personally. <laughs> anyway, so that that happened about a year ago. And then, I don't know, what was it before, just after Christmas or something, Kate and I had another, like, we regularly yeah. have, like, what we call Skype hangs, even though neither one of us has used Skype in three million years. <laughs> <laughs> Does Skype even exist anymore? Honestly, who knows? But I'm not gonna call it zooming. I'm not gonna say I'm gonna Ugh, zoom Molly. Like never. That sounds disgusting. <laughs> I accidentally opened the Skype app on my laptop last week, and I was like, "Ugh, get out of here." <laughs> um, but we were skyping each other for lack of a better word, and we it just kind of like cascaded into this where we were both yelling for a while about like being bored and feeling unfulfilled and needing something to do and then it was like by the end of it we were like so anyway the podcast yes and it was just like (laughs) we were 100% in it after that conversation and I feel like it just took us a year of kind of individually mulling over wanting more and and knowing that going back to school was not the answer at this point getting a new job was something that I had done like twice already and it wasn't working. <laughs> it was just like, okay, what else are we going to do? And they're like, oh wait, at this new job I still have to work? Gross. I don't want this. <laughs> Never mind. This is what I wanted. <laughs> exactly. Wait, I'm not independently wealthy and living on a yacht in the Seine? Excuse? Yeah. <laughs> pretty much. So that is kind of how the idea started, but my first question for Kate gets to that idea that we have been mulling over for a while about what makes us feel happy and fulfilled. So what I would like to know is what pursuits make you feel the most fulfilled? Yeah, so that's a really good question. I am nervous to answer it, but I will try my best. (laughs) Uh, So a little bit of context is that I... Uh, as Molly said, was kind of feeling a little bit adrift after my graduate school experience. I ended up more or less changing careers, I guess you could say. Um, my graduate degree is in art education, and so I shifted into development work and communications work for nonprofits. So um, fundraising, in other words, and communications. So 
I think for me, that was one of the driving forces behind this podcast because I, I, I really missed those intellectual conversations that I had the privilege of experiencing in graduate school. And I really wanted to continue having that intellectual challenge, which I mean, <laughs> I don't think is present in most jobs. Like, not because they're bad jobs, but just because I think an academic pursuit is much different than most actual jobs. Um, I have a husband who I love a lot and is really supportive and amazing. And I was feeling really down um, on like a Friday after work. And I sat down at our kitchen table and started talking to him about exactly this problem that I was really not feeling intellectually fulfilled and I want to do something that allows me to do that. And I was saying that I would love to just do book reports and talk about the things that I love <laughs> with people. And he was saying, oh, we'll just start doing that then. And I was like, well, I can't just do it. Like, what are you talking about? Like, who's gonna, who's gonna care that I'm doing this? And he was like, well, why does it have to be for somebody else? Why can't you just do it for yourself? And like my brain kind of cracked and I was like, oh my God, that's an option. And so <laughs> as I was like talking this through with Molly, she was like, yeah, we could definitely do a podcast. Like, you know, and so the, the idea formed and I won't add any more of this because I am supposed to be answering a question that I'm avoiding. So um, <laughs> to answer your question, um, I feel most fulfilled when I'm learning. And it's something that I have realized uh, as an adult, but has always definitely been a quality of mine. Uh, I think something that's also important to know about me that informs this is that I have a very obsessive personality, which is often perceived as being a type A, very organized, um, hardworking individual. And really, it's just me being obsessive over things that I really love. And this is, <laughs> this is something that happens with, um, with books, with movies, with TV, with anything that I really, um, fall in love with and people mm -hmm. too. And so, uh, I think that learning really lends itself well to a personality like that because you can always discover new obsessions. And, Another part of it is that when I'm learning from someone else, I love to hear from them because I love to hear people talk about things that they love. And uh, it makes me feel less alone in my obsessiveness because when anyone talks about something that they love, they sound obsessive because it's just kind of the nature of it. And so it makes me feel more normal in my obsessiveness um, because I know that everybody's obsessive about something. It's just usually different person to person. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely obsessive about things, but in a different way from you, which I think is part of the reason why we're good at these conversations with each other, because the things you notice and focus in on are different from the ones that I do. And the things that you're good at, like the, you are really good at organizing information and Kate started a spreadsheet really early on about all the books <laughs> that we could potentially do on this podcast. And I was spending my energy and time thinking about what kind of a creative voice I would want to share over social media and not Which at is all also doing. Important. 
<laughs> yeah, which is very important, but not like it's a completely different thing from what Kate was good at and doing and setting up like structure for us to build off of, which was not the obsessive thing that I was doing. <laughs> so I think it's a great, <laughs> it is, it's cool when those things fit together with people that you're close to. Yeah. And I think too, I am always drawn to people who I feel like are smarter than me, like you, because <laughs> it is <laughs> something that challenges me. And, um, this is a through line in my entire life is that I get bored and then I need a challenge and then I yes. pursue it so aggressively and so obsessively that then it's not a challenge anymore. And so I pivot uh, and do, do something completely different, yeah. uh, which is kind of how we ended up here. <laughs> yeah. Um, but also like it, it shows in the sense that I grew up on a farm. I had never been to an art museum before. And when I got to college, I decided to... Uh, declare my major art history and then go 110% in that direction. And then after I finally got a job out of grad school, I was like, nope, this isn't it. And so I pivoted and went in a completely different direction. So yeah, uh, yeah I've had a lot of a lot of that. And I now that I know that about myself, I try to temper it a little bit and be like, okay, is this a reasonable thing for you to be going after this hard? Or is this like, is it the challenge that you yeah. want to? Yeah. Because yeah. challenge for the sake of challenge isn't always beneficial. You know, sometimes it pushes yeah. us in a direction that we ultimately don't really want to go in, but we think we do because it's like the challenge that we're enjoying. And also it's a thing of like, when you are um, pursuing something so intensely, other things have to, by its very nature, go to the wayside. Yeah. And sometimes it's not worth pursuing something that hard when you're leaving other things that are also worthy behind. Yeah, that's that is a good point. Okay, so should I ask you a question now? <sighs> yes. Are you ready? Uh, or are you also nervous? <laughs> I'm also super nervous. Yes, but go ahead. Okay, so my question to you is, as I mentioned, uh, I majored in history of art at The Ohio State University. Sorry, I had to do it one time, um, <laughs> which is oh, where we both met. <laughs> and um, Molly, you also majored in history of art. Uh, mm -hmm. What drew you to that major and why? I chose art history because when I first went to college, I went to a smaller school in Ohio and then I transferred to Ohio State. And when I was signing up as a freshman, you know, I had like a, at the time who, someone who I thought was an adult, but looking back was just like an older upperclassman who was like <laughs> helping me sign up for classes. Um, and they, you know, they said you need an elective and, and the choices were a few things. And one of them was art history. And I just was like, well, I guess I'll take that. And that was my first semester of college. And then the next two semesters I worked to try to shift into something like chemistry or, um, business was the other thing that I tried because my dad wanted me to do something that was more technical something that I would be guaranteed to have a job with um but I was so unhappy with it and not good at chemistry and that sort of way of thinking and when I was struggling through those classes I kept remembering that first art history class I'd taken and how much I loved it and was good at it and felt like I understood what we were talking about and how we were supposed to be talking about it. Whereas when I was in something like a physics or a chemistry class, although I could grasp certain elements of it, 
I always felt like everyone around me was speaking a language that I hadn't learned and didn't know how to learn. And even when I had a a question about something, I could never seem to ask it in a way that allowed the professor to answer it because they, they didn't, we were never speaking the same language. But when I was in an art history course or something like psychology, sociology, that was the language that I understood and was always talking in any way. So that is why I chose art history, even though I had fairly extreme pressure not to do that. There were lots of things about myself that I chose to disregard or tried to minimize because I knew the people around me didn't like them or didn't approve of them. For some reason, the art history thing was one that I, I knew was true about me and deserving of pursuit. And actually, the one of the reasons the whole, the fact that we met by going on a study abroad trip to Paris and all of those things lined up for me always felt so important to me was because right before I applied to be uh, approved to go on that trip, because you had to submit an application and only a certain amount of people got okay to go on it. So I submitted that application in like January of 2013. And in December of 2012, I almost dropped out of school entirely because my dad was so insistent that I would never be able to pay back the student loan that I was incurring with a bachelor's degree in art history. And I was I was still really young. I didn't have a sense of the world. I felt like he was probably right. And it deciding to stay in, to, in school and finish the degree and deciding to submit that application for that study abroad was kind of my active rebellion and like allegiance to myself to say, look, I, I don't know what to tell you. This is the choice that I have made. This is the direction that I've been heading in for the last three fucking years of my life. And it is the one thing that I found that makes me happy and that I feel good at. So can you fuck off and let me just try to be who I am? <laughs> and so I submitted that application. I remember the moment I like hit the enter button and I was like done. And I felt this like, fuck everyone. Like I'm doing this. I can do this. And then I got to go on this trip and it solidified the sense that there are people like UK, there are people like the other friends that we met that understand that piece of who you are. And there is a way forward here even though everyone else in your life has told you that this is a dead end. I don't think that I've answered your question at all. Yeah, you have. Yeah, you <laughs> here, here. absolutely. <laughs> what are you talking about? The moral of the story is that uh, the STEM field is not the only thing of value. <laughs> yeah. So that that's where I'm trying to get. Was Support that, the arts, folks. Right. Because I was able to follow what felt to be the correct path to me, I met you and a lot of other people who remain some of my closest friends and those people meeting you and having that experience were one of the ways that I was able to get out of evangelicalism and a really bad relationship. So our choices, when we follow what is right for us, it isn't always about the one thing that someone is telling you won't work out like a good job. Like maybe I would have had a better job but if I hadn't met you and had that experience in Paris, I would never have met myself and who I really am and have every right to be. And my life would not have gone the way that I think it was supposed to. 
So, and also I think it's always worth asking people define better. You know, what do you mean by a better job? Because I know many people who are in the arts, you're right. It does not pay a lot and it can have its difficulties, but they're also usually very fulfilled in what they're doing. They feel like they are making a difference and, um, you know, what they're doing has a great importance in the world. And I know a lot of other people who went a more financially secure route that may not have that. Um, And so, you know, again, it's everybody has their own thing and it's just like anything in life, it has its pro and cons and you kind of have to just decide that you're going to be okay with the cons of any Mm -hmm. given choice because the pros outweigh them. Yeah. And I think the other piece of the puzzle is that just because you have a bachelor's degree in something that is considered less technical or less, you you have less hard skills when you come out of college, um, the, the skills that you learn in humanities and communications and uh, things like research and writing are undervalued by our society, but are deeply essential to its function. And if you can see the value of those things, Mm -hmm. there's always ways to make money off of what you are good at if that is what you want to do. Yes. Um, Okay, so I guess you're up next. Okay. So like we said, Kate and I met on a study abroad trip to Paris and back when we first became friends we became close because we roomed together during that trip it was two weeks long and we we were roommates so we spent a lot of time together and at that time I was basically just like and for the first like couple of years of our friendship I was this like pent-up ball of evangelicalism repressedness and (laughs) and like unrequited longing for things that I believed I couldn't have but desperately wanted and uh <laughs> which is where i stepped in and said who cares just do what you want <laughs> and in addition like unrequited longing for two weeks in paris that were the most alive i had ever felt and i knew we could never transport ourselves back to <laughs> and so i was like always like kate talk to me about paris <laughs> like it was just a lot of like tell insanity. me about the good old days uh, three weeks ago <laughs> God. Um, So, but through those conversations and those first couple of years of our friendship, I think we talked a lot about things like love and heartbreak. And um, I, to the point that once I, I'm sure you'll recall, I very grandly said this whole thing about the person I was with at the time where I was like, the worst days with him are better than the best days with anyone else. (laughs) And I desperately wanted that to be true. (laughs) Um, It's only true when you're talking about your dog. Like, I'll oh, still love you even if you God. puke on my computer. <laughs> Honestly. Um, I have always thought of you as someone who's very pragmatic, and I am someone who's kind of prone to skepticism and realism. But I think that we are also both very, very romantic people. I mean, we studied art. <laughs> that tells you something. It's a requirement. And it's a prerequisite. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, you have to be hopeful and optimistic to devote your life to something like that because you believe that it has meaning and impact Mm -hmm. and can change things. Um, So I think we also both believe that love is real and that people who are meant to be together find one another. So 
with that all said, I would like to know, do you believe in soulmates? And what does the term soulmates mean to you? This is a great question. And I love it. <laughs> um, I do not believe in soulmates in the sense that there's exactly one person out there for every one person. <laughs> I think that's a little bit ridiculous. Um, mostly because I have a very strong philosophy that we are a culmination of our experiences and our situations. And I think knowing that any one of us could react in different ways or meet people that are different if we had only had different circumstances. So I don't think that there's exactly one person out there for everyone. I think if you had been born into a different situation, you probably could have found somebody who you equally love, uh, whether that's romantic or platonic. But I do think that there are people who you connect with on a soul level. And that if you use that definition of soulmates, I do agree with that. That there are people out there, whether it's friendships or romantic, that you click with in a way that you don't with other people. And that's because there's something inside of you that is just really similar or attracted to one another. Um, and I tend to view relationships holistically. So I don't think that soulmates is just a romantic thing. I also think it's a friendship thing. Yeah. I think that is very similar to how I feel about it. One of my friends has this philosophy, and I probably won't explain it perfectly, but she describes something like soulmates in this way that when the Big Bang happened, let's say, you know, there was all these, all this material and it exploded out into the universe. And some of those pieces attached that were once together attached to other things. And, and sometimes you find a person who has a piece of something that you were originally made of and that. you yeah like you can sense that and you know that we were once together in a more fundamental way yeah I, I think that's very true to my experiences in that there are certain people out in the world that can are the only ones that can bring out a certain part of me. And so I think we kind of appreciate them for that, you know, that there are yeah. some people who bring out a certain side of you or nurture it or encourage it where other people do mm -hmm. not. And so it's also um, your relationship is not just your relationship. It's also informing your relationship with yourself. Yes, I, I completely agree with that, that while we always contain everything that we are inside of ourselves and we always have access to those things, there are people that let us become more vibrant in a certain aspect of our personality or that thing that happens like when you're riffing with someone or when you have romantic chemistry with someone, there is an exchange that is going on that you can only have with certain people that exact experience. And, and there are some people in the world who you'll never have a flow like mm -hmm. that with, because I mean, if you want to use my friend's example, you weren't ever made of the same mm -hmm. stuff. 
and your stuff was never touching that person's stuff. And so, like, God, that sounded so gross. <laughs> and you don't want your stuff to touch their stuff. Keep okay? your stuff as far away from my stuff as Keep possible. Stop out of here. Yeah. I don't want your volcanic rock anywhere near my volcanic rock. <laughs> yes. Uh, and I don't know that that is scientifically sound in any way, that, like, my description of, like, the Big Bang. But... I think it is a very good metaphorical understanding of like why some people click with you on a fundamental level and other people yeah, don't. Yeah, we already covered this. We didn't study science. It's fine. <laughs> what do you people yeah, expect? Guys, I already told you I can't speak the language of chemistry. <laughs> the best I can do is be like some stuff and stuff. Okay? That works. That works. Okay. I have another question for you, which is... Okay. Uh, you mentioned at the top of the episode that this was not the worst year for you, which is good, but it was a very complicated year, (laughs) uh, for most people, including you. So what is one piece of pop culture that you've seen or read or listened to in the past year that's really brought you joy in the pandemic? And just to throw it in there, what's one that you hated? So the, one of the things that I found to be very comforting to me this year was TikTok. I think a lot of people experience that as a means of escape. And for the record, I do not make TikTok. So anyone listening, you cannot find my TikTok and be like watching my videos. They don't exist. I'm, I am not that kind of a person. So defensive. It's okay if you are. (laughs) You can't watch my TikToks. (laughs) I've had people ask me like if I make them and I'm just like, no, I can't figure out how to. So <laughs> Because I'm old, okay? <laughs> absolutely not. And I also don't, I don't have the, like, energy to yeah. do that sort of thing. I, I don't have the drive to do that sort of thing. Um, and I, I don't want to go viral in that sense. Like, people will make a TikTok randomly on a Tuesday and they're, like, talking about something and they're just, like, in their car wearing a sweatshirt and they go viral. And it's like, yeah, everyone has to look at you looking the way that you looked and you didn't think you were going to be seen by a million people. And that's not what I'm trying to do with my life. That's why this is a watching other people's medium that we've chosen. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, but watching other people's TikToks has been both uplifting and thought-provoking and humorous and it's been a nice reprieve from the boredom that we all are experiencing this Mm -hmm. year so tiktok is the good Mm -hmm. one and then the the one that i thought of that has really probably annoyed me the most this year pop culture wise there's always going to be something on twitter that makes you want to like hurl yourself off a balcony at some point (laughs) Um, and so this will be twofold. I have two critiques of people's behavior on Twitter. First, I have many. I can't is, believe you only have two. I, <laughs> well, for the sake of time, I am picking two. Um, the first is that thing that was happening for the first, I'd say, three or so months of the pandemic, where the progressive, very liberal side of Twitter was doing, like having a circle jerk about being holier than thou about being the best at quarantine and pandemic norms. And you would see tweets all the time about like, I can't believe this, blah, blah, blah. I haven't left my home since March. Mm -hmm. And it was like, hey, leave your home, okay? (laughs) 
<laughs> no one, no one has told you that you cannot leave your studio apartment. You literally must leave your studio apartment. I cannot see another fucking story or tweet or whatever bullshit about how hard it is that you're trapped inside your studio apartment. Yeah, take a walk, Go buddy. Go for a <laughs> walk. <May. laughs> yeah, like it, it was just this like weird, I need to express how bad I feel about this by making my situation worse than it needs to be and and making it seem like I'm doing this better than everyone and and the martyrdom. And I was just like, girl, go to an Airbnb for a weekend. Do you like go to the mountains or if you don't live near mountains, go to the Walmart. I, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> like there you had options available to you that maybe some were less safe than others, but you could have done something beyond just sitting alone in your apartment and you and tweeting about that. So the one that I feel has a greater effect on the world that I think we all need to stop fucking doing that happened so much this year with the politics and everything was retweeting people you hated to dunk on mm -hmm. them. Like, and making someone like Tommy Lahren or Donald Trump, I mean, he was always trending, but Candace Owens, whoever, trend. Ben Shapiro. Uh, yeah, ignore them what do you not understand about the fact that they thrive on the negative attention you saying that they're stupid and tweeting about them is just doing what they want like it's also how our social media algorithms work like they feed on outrage it, yeah they don't care if like, you're interacting with something because you hate it or because you love it either way the interaction is still what bolsters those accounts yeah yeah, and I, I get that people do it for personal gain. You know, like, if they jump on a trend, they can start, mm -hmm. like, they can go viral. I get all of that, but it's like, if you really want these people to lose the power they have in society, stop fucking talking to about them and yeah, to them. That's pretty much it. Like, so. unfollow them. Stop, you know. <laughs> yeah, like, just fucking stop. Anyway, that was real frustrating for me this year. Yeah. I could have just avoided Twitter altogether, but what else was I going to do with my time? For real. Okay, so my next question for you. So this is related to the soulmates question. It, I, it's kind of an extension of it. I've been thinking a lot lately about how we meet our own needs, but how people we are in relationship with can also meet our needs and kind of where the responsibilities lie. And you are someone who I think of as having a very good, healthy relationship with your partner. And because of that, I would love to know, what do you see as your responsibility to meet your own needs in a relationship and your partner's responsibility to meet your needs? Yeah, that's a good question. Also, I'm honored. <laughs> They're like, oh, you have a good relationship. Tell me about it. Yeah, um, you do. So I would say, I think when you originally sent me this question, the word happiness was in there. Like, what responsibility mm. oh, yeah. does the person have to make you happy or not? Um, yes. And... The reason I bring that up is because I don't think anybody has a responsibility to make anybody else happy. So just right off the bat, that's not a thing. <laughs> Your <laughs> responsibility to make yeah. you happy is on yourself. However, yeah. I do think in a serious long-term relationship, you do have the responsibility to not make each other miserable. 
And mm. uh, that means that you should absolutely be making the effort to not do things that you know make your partner feel terrible things, uh, whether that is you know, not talking to them in poor ways or um, forcing them to do or say things that they don't want to do. Uh, I think mm-hmm. that is is a part of it. I also think the kind of second part of the question, which is what responsibility do you have to meet each other's needs, um, really differs for every relationship. So I don't feel qualified to talk about that <laughs> in terms of anybody else's relationship. But what I will say about my own is that um, the number one thing that I think we have a responsibility to each other to do is to be vulnerable with each other and then to respect that vulnerability when it comes out of the other person. And um, I feel that way because I think you need a foundation of trust and respect for a relationship. But um mm-hmm. A major way that that is built is through vulnerability. And so you kind of can't have one without the other. While your needs change throughout a relationship, the one thing that you do always owe each other is your vulnerability. And sometimes it's helpful Mm -hmm. to even frame it like, this is something I don't want to talk about and I feel really vulnerable about and I feel really self-conscious about this. And so I'm going to say this to you and I need you to be really receptive of it. Um, And yeah. I found that's a better way to approach it than to just like spew out your vulnerability and then they don't react well because it's like, I didn't know that this was that big of a yeah. deal to you. What is even happening right now? Um, totally. And I say that in terms of like my romantic relationship, but also my relationship with my friends that I think you do, mm-hmm. if you want to have a long-term serious relationship, that you do owe it to the other person to continue being vulnerable with them. It's not something that ever goes away. Yeah. I agree. And I think that's a really good way of if you stop focusing on your individual personal needs, like and how the other person can meet those for you. And you start focusing on what a relationship needs to survive and thrive. Then I think the the idea of responsibility becomes much more clear. Because yeah, like no one can be responsible for making you happy. It's not within their control. So if you put that requirement on them as like a need, it's kind of setting it up to fail. But if you look at a relationship, like a, uh, an ecosystem or something that requires certain elements in order to be stable Mm -hmm. and, and have things that thrive in it. I think that is like a little bit more clear of a way to approach it and understand that both people have to do things in order for it to be in equilibrium yeah I think it's maybe less about expecting someone to meet a very specific need for you and like you were saying creating the environment in which you know you can trust them to lend a hand where needed and um I think a huge part of that is being willing to be vulnerable and say like hey I really need some help on this I'm struggling with this thing right now and I really need you to step in and help me um yeah. But it's also very scary to to say that to anyone because it means that you don't have control over the situation and you, mm-hmm. you can't solve it on your own. Yeah. And I think that if probably if you're experiencing like fear every time you try to be vulnerable with someone, it is because they have consistently 
conveyed that it is not safe to be vulnerable with yeah. them. So uh, yes, like being vulnerable is scary because like it's hard for people, but you shouldn't be constantly feeling a sense of like, it isn't safe to be vulnerable with this person yeah. and they won't help me when I am. Like that's a big red flag <laughs> yeah. and one that I am well acquainted yeah, with. Yeah, I think that's the other part of it, right? Is that like, do you, like I owe it to my partner to be, vulnerable with him he owes it to me to respect that vulnerability when it comes out and vice versa yeah that's that was you said that at the beginning and that was like oh right like it is a responsibility to be respectful of someone else's vulnerability the reaction i have had most consistently from men when i have chosen to be vulnerable with them is that they argue with me (laughs) they they tell me that what i feel and what i experienced (laughs) was not correct and i think Obviously, it is a very toxic thing to do. I think people and especially men do that frequently because they don't know how to engage with someone being vulnerable mm-hmm. and it makes them uncomfortable and they don't they don't know what to say or don't know what to do and they don't know how to provide comfort or support. And so instead of acknowledging that something isn't wrong, they try to tell you or instead of acknowledging how you feel and what your experience is, they try to change Mm -hmm. it and say like well that's not really what's happening because if it's not what's happening then they don't have to engage in a way that they don't aren't equipped to do well if it's not happening then the problem is solved and they don't have to solve the problem exactly and they don't (laughs) have to solve the problem yes and what i think people don't understand a lot of times is that when someone is being vulnerable they're not really asking you to solve the problem because usually it's not Mm -hmm. solvable they just need someone to like be with them in that space and see them and and provide comfort and support um And unfortunately, I think men are like very poorly equipped to do that. And so when I've had that reaction, although I think sometimes it has been malicious and intended to like make me feel Mm -hmm. crazy, I think other times it's it's born from like total lack of emotional well-being on the other person's part. Yeah, I think so, too. I mean, definitely within friendships, I've, you know, experienced that, too, where like, you know, maybe a a friend is like being vulnerable and entering this space and the other friend didn't Mm -hmm. expect to be there with them and like immediately kind of panics and backs out like, oh, I didn't know we were like this kind of friend. Like, I'm not ready for this and I I don't feel prepared to take this on. And so I'm just going to back away, Um, which is, you know also kind of valid in a certain respect but again that's why i'm saying that this is this is my handbook for long-term serious relationships i don't think that everyone has a um not everybody deserves your vulnerability i don't think and that's also fair to say is that like no this person specifically is not the one i want to go to it is a safe space where you're like that's the one where it's a responsibility yeah well, and I think that's one of the really beautiful things about um, long-term romantic partnerships is that by entering into a relationship like that, you are agreeing to be that person's main source of support in that way. Um, I, obviously, there is a lot of like conversation in our society about how being you are enough for yourself and being single isn't any less valid than being in a relationship. But one of my experiences with being single is that you don't have that built in person. You have, I have a lot of options to choose from some that are less safe than others, Mm -hmm. but I know that 
all of those people, most of those people in my life already have a person that they are responsible for providing that support to consistently through like that is their mm-hmm. partner. And for me to ask them to do that for me is a nut, an added burden on them sometimes that they might not have because they are already doing that actively for another person, especially this year when we're all like emotionally losing <laughs> our shit. So that, that is something that has been like a, a challenge for me to learn how to be able to do that for myself. It's never as like good as having like a, another person in the room to help you like talk you off the ledge, but it has been, I think a really good thing for me to learn that while it, it might not be as good or maybe I don't do it as quickly and maybe it's not as satisfying, I absolutely can do that for myself. And I am my own built in like support. <laughs> so you're like, like a Cammy it, with a built in bra. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, I also think it's worth saying that just because you're in a romantic partnership doesn't mean that you should um, expect the other person to do all of your emotional labor for you. Yeah, that's not reasonable either. People don't do that. No. And one of the blessings of like being forced to learn how to do it for myself is that it makes me a much better partner because I don't would not expect the person I'm in a relationship with to meet all mm-hmm. my needs. And I have not only that I don't expect it, but I've actively learned how to take care of them myself and to do that kind of maintenance for mm-hmm. myself. Um, so anyway, that's, that's great. I'm glad we <laughs> talked about that for three hours. <laughs> Perfect. Okay. Wait, do I have another question for you? I've forgotten. I think I do. Okay. Um, all right. So my last question for you, and then we're going to both answer one, uh, is that, um, I love books because I love being told a good story. And this is also why I love most other pop culture things. So what is one thing you've learned about yourself that's allowed you to frame your story differently in a way that's made your life easier or better? Okay. This is the question I'm the most excited for. And the one I thought about the most. This question is great and I'm excited to answer it. And it was hard for me when I was conceiving of how to, because I have learned so many really important things about myself in the last two years. And it was hard for me to like pick one. Um, But I also was like, you can't talk about this one question for an hour. So you better (laughs) narrow it it down. Um, So I have tried to pick what I think is the most important thing that I have learned And then I have an example of how that now applies in my life and and one of the ways that it has manifested in how I see myself and what I allow myself to do. So we've talked about the fact that I grew up in evangelicalism and I spent a lot of time in that worldview. And also within that, I spent a long time in a relationship with someone who was and remains very committed to the evangelical mindset. So I had gotten very used to seeing the world in black and white, good, bad, very strong binaries, because that is what evangelicalism encourages. And it discourages thought that is in the gray area Because, of course, if you're thinking in the gray area, then that's like where you can start to see that there are flaws in this worldview and you can start to think for yourself and imagine another way. And that is 
obviously discouraged. <laughs> I got used to seeing my ability to think in less strict binaries as bad. And so I didn't encourage it in myself. But as I have left that world and that relationship, I learned something very important about myself, which was that I am was not the problem. Uh, in that relationship, my partner was not willing to take responsibility for the things that he did wrong or didn't do well. And when you're in a binary mindset, the alter the only alternative is that it was my fault. And because I could never convince him to take responsibility or change his behavior, the way I learned to survive it was by seeing that it was my fault and therefore I could do something about it. I could try to fix it if it was me and I was a problem. Um, but leaving that and realizing that I wasn't always the problem and that all of my experiences weren't wrong and imagined and, and that it, it wasn't my emotional instability 100% of the time that caused the issues. Um, that has allowed me to realize and accept that two seemingly opposing things can exist at the same time. Mm -hmm. And that has freed me to think and experience things in the way that I am more naturally drawn to, which is in this in-between space where I can see two different things at the same time and accept them as equally valid and equally true, even though it's kind of hard to conceive as of how they can be. Mm -hmm. um, and what that allows me to do is see myself in a much more neutral and positive light because I don't have to be perfect in order to still be good. Mm -hmm. And it also allows me to see other people in that way and to see them more realistically because I'm able to look at their flaws and their good qualities. Yeah. And it's a whole, it's a more holistic way of seeing not only your life and your experiences, but also the people around you. And I really love to give people the benefit of the doubt and to I don't like to burn bridges. And now that I have been able to move away from that very binary thinking, I'm, I feel more able to experience things as they actually happen versus the way I am being told that they happened. Mm -hmm. uh, I think, you know, narrative is, is a really, really powerful tool and it's been yeah. used to start cults and to uh, mm -hmm. convince people that they can do things and to um, start wars and all kinds of things. But I also think that narrative is really important on a micro level. So what is the narrative that we tell about ourselves and how does that impact our day to day? And, um, mm -hmm. you know, I think that's really interesting. Yeah. And the reason the question that you asked made me think of this progression that I've gone through is because just like what you said, I was being told a story about who I was that once I left evangelicalism and that relationship, I learned was not true at all. I, I was always being told that I was like emotionally chaotic. I was 
a toxic person. I had no filter. I was too intense. A lot of very negative framings of I am deeply emotional and I have yeah like big emotions, mm-hmm. but I am more than capable of handling those things and expressing them in productive ways mm-hmm. and, and letting myself have the experience that I'm having. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, I have recently come across a lot of, um, uh, I don't know, research and asset based language and how it's different mm. than deficit based language. Uh, specifically as it relates to, you know, black and brown communities and how they're being talked about uh, on the nonprofit marketing side. But I think it mm-hmm. applies to all of us. You know, if you if you use the word chaotic, it's pretty different than using the word um, unique or, mm-hmm. you know, and so like those sorts of things do really matter. It's like, how do we frame yeah. ourselves to other people and to ourselves and yeah, makes a Yeah. I I used to think of myself as I don't remember where I heard this term. Uh, I think I saw it on a quote on Tumblr, but I it was a long time ago and I don't remember where the quote came from. But it was emotionally slutty. And I th- I used to like tell myself that I was that a lot. Which is I hate that word. Really awful. It's really awful. Because the implication is that emotions are bad and that they are if you're emotionally slutty, like you can't control them and they're leaking out of you all the time and and you are you can like or or that like you shouldn't share emotions with other people. They're meant to be bottled up and like refined and stoic. And that the more you share your feelings and your emotions and the more they get on other people, the less valuable you become. Mm-hmm. Cause that's what is, that's what slut shaming is all about yeah. is that the more sexually active you are and the more you share your sexuality with other people, the less valuable you are as a person, as a woman, let's be honest. Um, so I used to, f- to f- consider myself in those terms. And I, I now think of myself more in, in, as someone who's like an emotional engineer, (laughs) you at the beginning talked about being obsessive in sort of like classically type a ways or the way like ways people interpret as that. And I am very obsessive when it comes to emotion, the emotional experience that is I'm having and that other people are having around me. And it's why I am obsessive about memories and the way something happened and, I want to know the whole truth about something, even though individual people are kind of incapable of having the whole truth of a situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are the things that I get really obsessive about. And I l- used to be really negative about that in myself. And now I think of it as like, I- I'm someone who's able to build bridges between my experience and someone else's. Mm-hmm. And instead of it being a bad thing that I can feel and, send emotion everywhere it's a a very technical exceptional skill mm-hmm. yeah i like that i think um i think every characteristic is a double-edged sword so if somebody yes. says something negative about you then you can probably turn it <laughs> on its head and make it positive too. because yes. <laughs> the I chance agree. that they're saying you know 
you're bossy and you can't turn that around and mm. say, no, I'm, I know what I want, you know, or whatever yeah. is, yeah. is, uh, seems very rare. Like I have come across few personality traits in which you can't just be like, well, actually that could be positive in some lights too. You know, obviously there's, yeah. <laughs> there, yeah. it's all a spectrum, but, um, you know, it doesn't mean that something is always negative all of the time. Well, and I think often when someone critiques your personality in some way, whether it's to say that you're bossy or not friendly enough or whatever the thing is, often what's underneath that is that they're saying you are not giving them what they want from you. Yeah. And Which is their problem. It isn't your, <laughs> yeah, it's not your responsibility to give someone what they want from you, especially someone that you haven't agreed to be in a certain kind of relationship with. Mm-hmm. And often when people come up against your boundaries, they will try to, to frame it like that's a character flaw or that you shouldn't, you're not friendly enough or whatever the thing mm-hmm. is. And it's like, no, actually I just have really, really good boundaries. And I, I don't feel obligated to give you something that I don't want to give you just because you want it from yeah. me. I say all this knowing that like the next time a toxic boy calls me, I'm going to pick up the fucking phone, but <laughs> ugh, we can't all be perfect. Uh, we're all working on our stuff. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So let's move into our final question because we've now been recording forever and this is going to yes. take me eight hours to edit. <laughs> so, um, all right. So our final question is just what is your favorite book? Yes. Uh, why don't you answer first since I just answered your question? I'm going to answer my own question. Um, my favorite <laughs> book is one that I've been telling people is my favorite book for a very long time. Uh, although I admittedly have not recently reread it. Um, my favorite book is Gone with the Wind. When I was 12, the summer before I turned 13, I, again, <laughs> became obsessed with reading a bunch of classic literature Um, because my school system did not require that we read any of it. And I actually mean we did not read any of it. Um, So I read Gone with the Wind and completely just fell in love with the book. I think one of the reasons why I loved it so much, even though it is very racist and has a lot of issues, uh, was just it was the first time that I ever saw uh, or could point to a female protagonist that was an antihero. And a lot of times we see men who are presented in ways that you know as the viewer or reader um, that they're not a good person, but you like them anyway. But I had rarely ever seen women depicted that way because it's so often the implication that women are supposed to be likable at all times always. And so this was the first time that I was like, oh, okay, so women can also just not be there to serve other people and have their own ambitions (laughs) and their own ideas about how things should go and take action based on wanting to serve those needs and wants. And so, um, yeah, I just really loved it. It obviously is one of the greatest love stories. Well, I shouldn't say greatest. That's a very subjective word. It's one of the most well-known love stories. And uh, I think it's one of the greatest that I've read. Um, and I just love it. I, I am glad that you can articulate loving that book. I've heard other people say that that's their favorite book too. And 
obviously, as you said, there are some like now current issues with it. Well, there were always issues with it, but ones that we understand better. Um, but that doesn't mean that the way you feel about it isn't valid. And obviously you have good reason for loving it the way you do. Yeah. I mean, it has its issues, but I, I also think that most things do because we live in in a society that has a lot of issues. So those come out in the art that we consume and the best we can do is Mm -hmm. frame it correctly as we move forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think sometimes having something that is imperfect makes it even more valuable because of its ability to be thought provoking Mm -hmm. and, and challenge us to force that conversation. Yeah. And it makes us investigate certain things about how we feel more so than if it were just like, very above board or whatever I don't know yeah so what is your favorite anyway book, Molly so my favorite book is one by an author named Dorothy Evelyn Smith it is called oh the brave music and it's a story set in I believe England in England in the early 1900s it's it's a novel it's so it's fiction and the arc of the story follows a girl who grows up in a strict religious environment and finds escape through her imagination and that is what keeps her alive and and allows her to be who she really is even though that's not who she is allowed to be in her daily life but throughout the story you find the way that it sabotages her because it prevents her from experiencing life as it is the reason the book is called oh the brave music is because the main character quotes a line of poetry at one point that says oh the brave music of a distant drum and she talks about how the music is beautiful because it is far away and she is afraid that should she go and seek out the music and experience it in person it would not live up to her imagination and So that's kind of how she lives her life is by not going out and and reaching for the things she wants because she's afraid she'll be disappointed by them. And by the end of the book, she has overcome that and accepted that uh, the best of life is better than she could imagine. And the disappointments of life are not as bad as she fears. And she like lives solidly in herself and in the reality of the moment and appreciates it for what it is. And I have the name of that book tattooed on my arm because I am so prone to wanting to escape my life through my imagination and feeling afraid that it won't ever be as good as what I had hoped. And I don't want that to be the reason that I choose not to experience life. Um, So I got the tattoo as a reminder to accept it as it comes and appreciate it for what it is. And you know, to see the value of my imagination and the way it allows me to escape. And it's allowed me to survive situations that were otherwise untenable. (laughs) But that it's, like you said earlier, everything is a double-edged sword. And to to be reminded of both the power and the danger of what my mind can do. I love that. So that is perfect. Yeah, so that's my favorite book. Um also kind of hilarious that this is a podcast about nonprofit nonprofit. Oh my god. Nonfiction books. <laughs> yes. This is a podcast about nonfiction books and we both chose fiction books. It's fine. Okay. Well, 
next time, we are going to be discussing Super Pumped, The Battle for Uber by Mike Isaac. And I am super pumped um, to talk about I this I almost book. made that exact terrible joke. <laughs> <laughs> so amazing. <Yeah>. Um, <laughs> so uh, we're excited to do that. We also have a special guest who also happens to be the smartest person living in my household and my dog's father, <laughs> my husband, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> The father of my dog. (laughs) My doggy daddy. Oh, Oh, no. (laughs) I wish I had not said that. I am so sorry. Oh, man. Uh, um, I need to go throw up now, so we got to (laughs) go. Tune in again next time for more of our bullshit. (laughs) 